to use the microphone, but we are being recorded, so we're going to um, make this informal, thus the uh, setup of the, of the meeting room, and also um, we're going to be passing the mic down the row and back, so if you'll just bear with us on that. But um, good, good afternoon. I am Laura Mins. I'm the chair of the SHA Alumni Committee for AASLH. In my real job, no, not that that's not a real job, but in my other life, my other professional life, I am the deputy director for historic sites for the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. And I take care of um, many of our historic properties and, and historic preservation is one of my main focuses. So that's, that's where I come from. Um, I'm located in Indianapolis. And I uh, do, I w went through um, developing history leaders at SHA, the Seminar for Historical Administration in 2005. And um, it's a very, very valuable experience. So how many of you have been through Shaw besides people on the panel? No one, excellent, excellent. So, all right, well, um, when, as I, I mentioned this before, but at, when you came into the room, you noticed a different setup than what traditional, um, the traditional uh, annual meeting spaces are. And that is because this is the exact type of setup, almost, <laughs> almost. You're missing a table in front of you, but um, it is, this is the exact setup that happens at SHA in Indianapolis. So. Um, Bob just walked in at a perfect time because he has to leave for another meeting, as you can imagine. Um, but he is, he is my main contact and, and co-partner in crime for our SHA alumni committee. And um, he is going to talk to you a little bit right off the bat about applying for SHA. So, Bob? Start spreading the news. Um, okay, uh, gosh, this is strange to be in a microphone in a small room. Um, yeah. Application process, I'm here to sort of give details. Uh, so we'll jump, we'll put cart extremely far before the horse. Since you don't, except for Kyle, know whether or not you want to do this, because Kyle's in this year's class. So um, welcome, Kyle. But uh, uh, the way this works, we accept applications every May, about mid-May. Mid um, and uh, it is a pretty simple application process. It's a, you write a case statement. You get a couple letters of support. We're going to add a couple elements uh, asking for institutional support, uh, verifying that. We, we, for the first time ever, run into some, some challenges with that this year. Uh, we take 18 a year, a maximum of 18 people a year. Um, and I will tell you that the applications come to me. I manage, AASLH manages uh, the SHA group on behalf of six partner organizations, AAM. You, you go through all this, don't you? Uh, Indiana Historical Society. I don't need to do, okay. I might as well finish now. Colonial Williamsburg, <laughs> uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture, and uh, National Trust and ASLH, all our partners here. Uh, the program itself costs somewhere, it's probably going to cost around $2,600 and change next year. 
uh, it's $1,200 for tuition, and then lodging is included in whatever the lodging cost is as a pass-through. Nobody makes, in fact, nobody makes any money on this program. This is a um, postgraduate seminar uh, that, and these folks will tell you, that offers you some of the finest training you've ever, ever been able to come across. Uh, we do realize that it does take several years for people to maybe consider doing this. Three weeks away from home and work is a, is a big commitment. They'll talk to you about that a little bit. Um, but uh, we accept the applications in May. We announce acceptance sometime in June, usually late June, for the class that begins the last weekend in October, the last Saturday in October. Uh, this year, and I think one more year, I'll be missing Halloween at home, and then I will be able to be back. But it's, it's right around Halloween weekend when, when it falls at the beginning. And uh, it's a wonderful group. You'll hear more about that. But, but the process goes through for now, AASLH, although we are working on a new uh, website for this group uh, to end of the month. And it, and it should connect the entire continuum. And we do have um, several generations of SHAers that are, that are here today um, and, and see the impact that it's had. So that'll come through me. If you have any questions, uh, I'm, I'm your guy. Or these folks can point you toward me uh, with a punch to me. Um, and uh, they'll, they'll be able to answer some. So I'm going to scoot because I've got another meeting to go to, and then I will be around if you have more questions and are intrigued by this. Also encourage you to think about your peers who might be interested in this program, and please help us spread the word. We're very proud of this, and you'll hear why in, in just a second. So thanks, Laura. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Um, as Bob briefly alluded to, developing history leaders at SHA begins the end of October, and you go home right before Thanksgiving. And it's designed that way on purpose. Um, it is every year, and there are many different classes. Each class tends to have its own personality and, and uh, fun activities that it, that it brings. So to that end, we have um, members from several different classes in front of you. And I'm going to go through and do their introductions, and then I'm going to pass the, pass the microphone to Cinnamon, and we'll go from there. Um, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko has been working in museums for nearly 17 years, and she has been a museum director since 2001. Prior to joining the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor, Maine, as CEO in 2009, Cinnamon was the director of the General Lou Wallace uh, study and Museum in Crawfordsville, Indiana, where she led the organization to a National Medal for Museum Service in 08. She's a passionate advocate for museums and for professional museum development because she was my mentor and it convinced me to go to SHA. And um, she's a frequent presenter at national museum meetings, so you'll see her around a lot. Um, she has an upcoming publication, Small Muse Museum Toolkit, which is a six-book series which will be published by Altamira Press in late 11. Um, she is a co the co-editor and chapter author for the series. She graduated uh, from SHA in 04, and she um, holds a BA from Purdue University and an MA from the University of Arkansas. She lives on Maine's Mount Desert Island, must be rough, <laughs> with her husband, son, and her dog named Chuck. So, all right, that's Cinnamon. So, yeah, I'm gonna do everybody first. All right, Andy Masick, 
is a true gentleman because he came down today and drove seven hours even though he wasn't on the list. <laughs> so my sincere apologies to Andy, but I turned it in, so I don't know what happened. Anyway, Andy is the president and CEO of the Senator John Heinz uh, History Center in Pittsburgh. He, um, the History Center is the largest museum in Pennsylvania, and he's been there for 13 years, and he's provided leadership for the operation of the 275,000 square foot History Center and its staff of 125. This also includes the Western Pennsylvania Sports Museum, the Meadowcroft Rock, Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, and the Museum of Rural Life, and the Meadowcroft Rock Shelter Archaeological Site, the oldest site of human inhabitation in North America, and most recently, the Fort Pitt Museum. Under Andy's leadership, the History Center has become known nationally for its award-winning exhibitions and innovative educational programs, and he will probably go into that a little bit. He serves as uh, on the American Association of Museums Accreditation Commission and is an active member of AASLH. He's also a SHA grad as well as an SHA faculty member, which I'm very pleased to have here as well. Um, he served, prior to joining the History Center, he served as vice president and acting president of the Colorado Historical Society in Denver and began his career at the Arizona Historical Society, serving as the director of both the Yuma and Phoenix Museums. So thank you, Andy. Our next presenter is, it will be Donna Sack. She is the principal of Sack Museum Consulting. She has over 25 years experience in strategic planning, community involvement and partnerships, visitor experience and interpretation. She is currently serving as project director for a Teaching American History grant. Earlier this year, she retired from Naper Settlement, where she served as Director of Visitor Services for 17 years, overseeing a staff of 24 and an operational budget of 1.2 million with additional million in federal grant dollars. Donna has extensive project management experience, including serving as project manager for the museum's initial successful accreditation, as well as large-scale grants, exhibits, educational, and evaluation programs. She is an 07 Shaw grad and, can, and serves on the SHA alumni committee with me, so I appreciate that. Finally, last but certainly not least, um, pinch hitting <laughs> for, um, for Scott Stroh is Trevor Jones. He's the director of museum collections and Exhibi exhibitions at Kentucky Historical Society. In his presentation, he will give you a little bit more uh, information about what he does and, and where he came from. So we'll go from there. So, Cinnamon, take it away. Great. Thanks, Laura. Oh, microphone. <laughs> so my assignment today was to look into my training experience through SHA and think about what I took away with me that has stayed with me that really guides me in my current work. Um, and that was pretty easy to do. Um, as you heard, I attended in 2004 and was with the General Lee Wallace Study Museum at the time, and the organization was starting a new phase of leadership. Um, I had been out of grad school at that point about seven years, so I was thinking I knew it all when I got out of grad school, quickly realized I didn't, um, and had been in the trenches for about seven years by the time I went back for more education, to so just give you a little perspective. 
Um, and um, what I'm going to do is get to the point, don't worry, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about the organization I was at and um, how I was able to come back and do some incredible fun projects and then how I've taken that onto the next job because sometimes you might anticipate in your life, you change your attitudes, your career path, what have you, but instead I've been able to hold this thread to the present and I know it will go to the future, which is one of the great powerful messages of SHA. So. I was at the General Wallace Study Museum, as I said, and when I went to SHA, we had done a strategic plan. I'd only been there a year. We'd with no money, budget of $30,000 maybe in a good year. Very, very small organization. Um, but the board wanted transformation. They didn't really know what that meant. I certainly told them later what that meant, but um, as I describe it, they had been in a caretaker mode for almost 100 years. Someone was there to let visitors in and um, put buckets out when the roof leaked. Seriously. Um, so when I got there, I was the first professionally trained person to work there, and I was part-time seasonal when I joined the museum. I had a consulting career that you're probably wondering how I paid the bills, but I also had some consulting work I was doing. So it worked out for me to join them and, and take a chance. So we get into this plan, we feel really good about our plan, and this educational opportunity comes along, um, and it was great timing because the plan wasn't as strong as it could be. I was a little bit inexperienced in strategic planning um, and certainly needing a refresher course on why I was doing the work I was doing and what the field as a whole was doing. Um, so it gave me the time away to go to SHA, get some perspective, and consider how we're going to do all these things we were going to do. And so for me, the big aha moment, the light bulb, the fireworks, all the excitement really happened on the day where we did mission development work. It was a full day. Usually the class is structured around half-day topics. Well, at least when I went through, I don't know if it's yeah. the way anymore. We did a full day of mission development work with Hal Scramstad, who's an incredibly respected leader in, in um, the history community and has a consulting business now. Um, and what we did during that day was we sat with our current mission, mission statements and critiqued each other in small groups. And I quickly realized that our mission statement was pretty lousy. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, apparently, when we developed that as a team. Um, but I had the opportunity to hear from my colleagues and the opportunity to share with them what it is people do when they come to the museum, how do they react, how do they feel, and then see how they would use words to describe it. And so when we left that session, of course, there were still more sessions to go, but as I left the whole class experience, I had the bare bones of what became our mission statement. Um, and it was thrilling, to say the least, to go back to my board, what were you doing for three weeks, and what are we going to get out of this? And I could show them, well, look, we've got this wrong, and here's the way we can do this. So just to give you a little insight about how, um, how trains for mission development, it, it can be a little different than what people expect. How many of you all have ever had an experience in developing mission statements? One, two. Was it a rewarding experience? <laughs> Wow, see, not so much for the recording. <laughs> the, the response was tepid. Um, <laughs> so you don't always get whatever level you're at in the organization you're working, you don't always get a chance to be on the front line developing a mission statement. Certainly it doesn't always happen for you, but some people will say that it's a, a cumbersome experience, it can be a little... Um, off-putting, especially when you don't feel like you're being heard or you're being able to contribute the way you want to contribute. And oftentimes we find that mission statements are very, um, or can be very cookie-cutter. They're usually talking about caring, collecting, interpreting, fostering something. 
um, they don't have a unique quality. So Hal would come to us in this class and show us how it could be different. And he uses a model that revolves around action, outcome, and value. And I could go for days about that, but I'm not going to. Point is, it was a transformative educational experience to realize it could be another way. It could be a different way than how I learned it in graduate school. And that all ways were acceptable, but I could learn my style a little bit better, better as a leader and how to manage around a mission statement, how to drink that Kool-Aid and believe it and make other people drink the Kool-Aid. It's a big job to do that, but it certainly leads to a sustainable organization when you get that kind of support. Um, so I went back to the board, long story short, and showed them literally the flip charts that we had used and showed them the exercise and how we had come to this statement. And they were thrilled and they said, okay, I think we're almost there with that exact statement, but let's take about three months and really do some good work. And so in the end, we came up with a mission statement that I still love and can recite, and that's the key. You can be able to recite it and believe it. It was to celebrate and renew belief in the power of the individual spirit to affect American history and culture. General Lee Wallace wrote Ben-Hur, and he did a great many other wonderful things, but the one thing we would hear time and time again was that people would say, I can't believe he did all of that in his lifetime. It's, it's my husband used to kid that he was the Forrest Gump of the Victorian era. He was everywhere all the time making an impact. And um, we would often say to people, well, you can too. Just get busy, get to it, make things happen. So we wanted to capture that experience. And once we did that, we knew we'd hit it. We went back, we looked at the strategic plan again, revised it, didn't take too many changes, but we did change our mission statement in the middle of a strategic plan. And with that, we were able to stand on firm ground, believe in what we were doing even more. We always had a vision for history and a love for history. The whole board, this, the people I worked with, they, they loved history, but they didn't get it. So we had that so what factor. Built programs, built exhibits, did historic preservation projects around that mission, resulting in a budget increase from about 30,000 to over 100,000. Did all of this in about six years. We had about 30 members when I started and ended in um, almost 500 members. And the numbers just go up and up. In addition, of course, visitation increased by dramatic um, strides. So we did all those things you hoped for, and I really would say it started with that mission statement. Last chapter of the story, I go to a new organization. I'm ready to use these skills. I'm all ready with my skills. And I find out that really this model didn't work for the organization because we were in a different place in the organizational life cycle. And if you ever get a chance to really study organizational life cycles, do it because you understand that some organizations are in their infancy, infancy or they're in their adolescence or they're retired out to pasture and think they're something else. But um, I really had the chance to realize that this wasn't gonna work. So we had to search for a new model, came up with a great solution, but because of SHA, I felt that I had a full understanding of the importance of mission development. When we would have it right, I knew what that would feel like. There's a feeling to it. Um, and I knew when we didn't have it right. And so we're going down the road trying to create a mission statement around this action, outcome, and value model, and it didn't feel right. Nobody could drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> staff couldn't drink the Kool-Aid. One of my staff members was in here. <laughs> she couldn't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> no. And lo and behold, one day a staff member who is no longer on the team, had been really kind of reserved in this process, said, you know, I think we need something else. I just read this article about how nonprofits should look to the corporate sector to think about their mission statements and that it should be almost like a brand statement, a motto, one simple statement. And she was right. It's actually what we needed because we had 
incredible deficiencies that we were still trying to understand, but we all agreed the visitor experience was key and that we were deficient in delivering an outstanding visitor experience, whether that was with our attitudes or with our product or otherwise. So it became quite simple that we needed to abandon what I had been taught and go with a new process and learn together. But I think I had the confidence to lead that way and not let my ego be infected and make it happen. So now we have a mission statement at the Abbey Museum, which is to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. Period, end of story. If we can't make that happen, we have no business doing anything else. And at the time, we really weren't making that happen. Um, so we're two years into our strategic plan um, that revolves around that mission statement, and I'm excited to say that it's working. I think we've got people drinking the Kool-Aid. I think the staff is happier. The board seems to know why they're there. There's other things they don't know, but in this instance, <laughs> they know why they're there, and they support it. Um, so I, I can truly say that the Seminar for Historical Administration was transformative personally because I had, in the end result, an incredible peer network that I rely upon, um, that I can encourage other people to participate in, um, that I can go to a reception twice a year and tell other people to go to SHA, and I have incredible confidence because of it, but also I have tools for building an organization that I couldn't find elsewhere. Um, and that's my story I'm sharing today. And I will pass it on to Andy. Thanks. You know, I think I'm gonna stand up, but I'll stay right at my little place here. I won't go far. Hi everyone, I'm Andy Masick, and uh, I'm the president and CEO of the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, um, as Laura said. But I wanted you to know that the SHA experience really did change my life. We, we say that, you hear that sort of thing, uh, but it really did. Uh, I was the director of a small museum in Arizona, six or eight staff people. It was one of those dirt under your fingernails kind of museum director jobs where you did everything from fundraising to exhibits to board development to toilet cleaning. And, uh, and this experience really did influence me to continue a career in museum work and as a director. Um, I was exposed to some of the top people in the field, in specialists in their area, museum directors, uh, registrars, uh, legal counsel, uh, fundraisers, uh, so many others. The thing that affected me the most, I think, though, was the, the colleagues that I met from around the country, those 18 young professionals. And I, I see one in the back. Uh, he still looks young, uh, doesn't he? Jim Vaughn, uh, former vice president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation uh, in charge of historic sites. Uh, when I think of some of our, our classmates, Jim, uh, Dave Donath at the Woodstock Foundation in Vermont, and uh, Doug Alves at the Calvert Marine Museum uh, on the Chesapeake Bay, and uh, Janet Vaughn, uh, who uh, is the information manager at the AAM. Uh, she's the person who uh, you probably talk to or someone in her department when you contact uh, the AAM for information, uh, and many others uh, who I've stayed in touch with all these years. What I got from SHA was not just an education, not just inspiration, but I got a network, uh, a professional network that has stayed with me the rest of my life. And I was in the class of, get this, 1982. 
Uh, and, and it was a good class. I, I hear Trevor saying 2009, 2009 was the class. Well, let me tell you, our class brought down the house. When we were uh, in the, the seminar, it was still held at Williamsburg, and we slept in dormitories uh, at William and Mary, and we walked uh, into the historic area every day, and we even dressed in costume and challenged the uh, the historic area uh, staff members to a cricket match, and uh, we ended up in the cupola of the governor's mansion. No one else has been allowed up there since that time. Uh, we were a menace uh, on the streets of Williamsburg, but we bonded as a group, and I, I'm confident that that still happens, not menacing uh, visitors in the governor's mansion. but. <laughs> But I think the bonding is still going on. And one of the things that I learned is to maintain my sense of humor. And uh, if, would you mind just playing one of my little clips? Um, I, I brought three clips with me, and this one is one of my favorite from Ghostbusters. And Funny you remember... going out like this, killed by a 100-foot marshmallow man. We've been going about this all wrong. This Mr. Stay Puft is OK. He's a sailor. He's in New York. We get this guy laid, we won't have any trouble. Stay puff I have a radical idea. The door swings both ways. We could reverse the particle flow through the gate. How? We'll cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. You're going to endanger us. You're going to endanger our client, the nice lady who paid us in advance before she became a dog. Not necessarily. There's definitely a very slim chance we'll survive. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. This job is definitely not worth another five a year. the rest of the story, they saved the world, all right? Uh, so crossing the streams, you know, uh, well, I don't know what that means for the museum uh, community. Uh, maybe it's making uh, history uh, relevant and, and fun at the same time, crossing those streams. Uh, but the, the, I think the important lesson about this is when things are bleak, uh, you got to go with a plan and stick with it and get excited about it. Uh, just like uh, uh, Dr. Venkman uh, there, it looked like the world was coming to an end. He had been told earlier in the movie, uh, what happens if we cross the streams? And well, it could mean the end of life on this planet as we know it. Good safety tip, Ray, he says uh, to Ray. Uh, well, that's what it's like at some of my board meetings uh, over the years. I mean, it looks pretty bleak sometimes. The budget is, is awful. It seems like your institution is spiraling uh, downward. You've got to come up with a plan that uh, may be risky, uh, but uh, if it works, it's going to be big. And I think you have to take some of those chances in your professional career. Uh, we've all done it. Um, maybe going to SHA right now in your career could be risky. Leaving home for three weeks, uh, it's, it's a big commitment. Uh, but I guarantee that this would be one of those commitments you're going to 
uh, you're going to remember and say, I made the right decision at that crossroads. Um, maintaining your sense of humor, uh, all of our classmates uh, still stay in touch. Uh, we share stories. We share war stories, uh, things that uh, are hard about our jobs, things that are fun about our jobs. Uh, and that camaraderie has bolstered us uh, over the years. Uh, I think, show that next uh, clip, if you would. We are Federalists, you know, the mountain police. If you're the Crank police, where are your badges? Badges? We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. All right, I don't have to show you any stinking batches from the uh, treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, one of the things that I learned at the seminar was to know your audience, uh, whether they're wearing badges or not, uh, and some of them don't like to wear badges. Some of your staff don't like to wear badges. Your board members always lose their badges, so uh, why even give them to them? Uh, but the most important thing is to know your audience. Uh, to do some research uh, ahead of time. You can't teach if you don't know who you're talking to, uh, the learning styles, the interests, the background uh, of your audience, because they don't all wear badges. They don't all tell you uh, who they are right up front. It's your responsibility to find out about them and how they learn, and then to deliver your history message in a way that's palatable to them. Uh, that may be a book. Uh, it may be a performance, it may be an exhibition, uh, it may be a workshop. Uh, tailor the, the medium uh, to your audience. That's one of the things that I learned and has stuck with me over the years. I'm not going to talk uh, anymore because I'd like to spend more time in the question and answer uh, period. But one other little thing that I remember from all those years ago is uh, one of our sessions dealt with why did you get into the history museum business in the first place? Do you remember back when you were a child, perhaps, uh, that aha moment, that inspirational moment, that, that history really grabbed you? It might have been in a book, might have been in a movie, might have been a visit to an historic site or a museum exhibition. Try to think back to that moment, because you've all got them still firmly implanted in your, your memory banks. Uh, and remember back to that time uh, and the, the excitement and the passion that you felt for history at that time, because you're going to carry that through the rest of your career. And whatever you do, don't lose track of that memory. And reserve some time for yourself that will allow you to stay in touch with that. Because as museum directors, we can very easily get burned out. We do things that we don't like to do. We handle uh, personnel disasters and budget shortfalls and wacky board members and uh, uh, donors uh, that you, uh, well, sometimes you feel like you're, um, well, whoring for history, one of my <laughs> colleagues uh, said it at best. And, and so we have to remember why we got in the business in the first place. Reserve some time, even if it's 2% of, of your day, to write or to teach 
uh, or to do artifact conservation, uh, whatever it was that inspired you in the first place, reserve some time to do that. It's going to keep you healthy. You'll be happy that you did. Thank you. It's my turn a little bit here. Um, I'm not going to, to be really long, but I just kind of wanted to share um, what happened to me when I came back from SHA. One of the things that Cinnamon mentioned was you have to pay attention to where your organization is in their evolution. Um, our, our organization is a state museum organization. We have state historic sites throughout Indiana. And we have some, um, our oldest historic site as a historic site is 86 years old this year. And, but we dis I discovered when, we came, when I came back from SHA that we were really kind of in our infancy with our historic sites. And I'll get into that more in just a minute. But um, taking the broad base of knowledge that both Andy and Cinnamon have have referred to as part of the SHA um, curriculum, I took that back to my institution as well as a, um, a little book that is 15 pages long but had a profound impact on our strategic planning effort that started in February of 06. And I got out of SHA in November of 05. So I was, you know, had you know, brand new goggles on, so to speak. And so I was looking at it from a, coming at strategic planning from a totally different place than I had came from strategic planning before. It came to strategic planning before and um, realized that our, um, our organization didn't have many of the substantial documents that need to be in place for historic sites, such as things called interpretation plans and furnishing plans and historic structure reports. We didn't have any. Um, and so we were, we were really coming at it from a, from a, we need to get these basics taken care of. And it was a, a major paradigm shift for the historic, historic sites part of our, of our division at the time. And that experience was profound and really still affects me today because there are things in that strategic plan, plan even though it was you know, five or six years ago, that we're still doing and still carrying out. So as, as Cinnamon said, we believed in our mission. There was, not, there was not that problem around the table. The staff all believed in the mission. We just had to figure out where we were going. So that's what where we came and and the unique thing about that was everybody came to the table and usually there are different um, everybody comes to the table and and there's a substantial give and take a real a real um, a real interaction with the staff between and sometimes you know out and out battles about what gets in the strategic plan. This time, there were many of us sitting around the table going, okay, we need to do this, 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 and this. And all of those this, this, and this, and this were many, of, were many if not all, the same things. So it happened, a strategic planning session that was planned for three days ended up taking two because there was so much um, 
there was so much cohesiveness throughout the staff. So it was a really wonderful experience. And um, that also, I think that experience also convinced my boss who had sent me to SHA, convinced my boss that we, we're, we, need to, we need to invest in this training as much as we can. So every year since I have went, with the exception of one, we have sent our senior staff members to, to SHA. And this year, we are starting on the next level of our staff members to send them. And that's something I'm actually very proud of because it had all of us then bring the same thinking to the table and we understand how one aspect of the organization affects all of the others. So it's a wonderful experience. So I'm going to turn it over now to Donna and um, she's going to talk about life after the museum. So here you go. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. I came to SHA after thinking about it and pondering about it for at least 10 years. And I was an attendee in 2007, and I actually had been in field at that point for 20 years. And the, all the materials said, you know, basically five to 10 year professional, yada, yada, yada. And I had a long conversation with Bob Beatty and I wrote my application um, essay. And I said, I had been at my, um, at that time, my current museum for about 15 years. And I felt that I needed to go away to make sure that I wasn't crazy. And I really, um, articulated that in my essay because I had been thinking about things within our field for a very long time. And I was looking for a group of people who were willing to think and explore and debate um, what our field is about, not just accept the status quo thought process. At this, about the same time, I had read uh, Joseph Pine's book, The Experience Economy. And I was looking at not-for-profit and for-profit models and thinking about what it is that we do, how we connect, and how we don't connect. And most importantly, I think it was about how we don't connect, because I wanted to understand why history is so important to people Yet we as museums were falling behind. And right now, with the economy that we have, um, that's, that's really still a struggle. But when we're out there and we're looking at um, the world around us, certainly biographies are flying off the shelf right now. Um, scrapbooking is incredibly popular. Journaling's incredibly popular. The History Channel is doing just fine. And then just recently, we're looking at a new TV show called something along the lines of Where Did I Come From? Um, the last uh, significant uh, Kennedy funeral, if anyone 
watch that and watch the eulogies, so much of that was about history and the fact that um, this was a family that was immersed in history and going to historic sites and thinking and thinking about history. So I attended a session at AAM that Joseph Pine was at, and he basically threw out to the crowd, um, you have the real stuff, you museums, and you've blown it. You've blown it. And so all of this was swirling around in my mind because I'd been in field for 20 years, but I was not classically trained. I didn't attend a museum studies program. I came out of design and resource management and literature and historic preservation. So I wanted to be grounded. And that's what Shah gave to me. We had a fabulous experience in Indianapolis. And Andy, I know Williamsburg was wonderful, but let me tell you, Indy is just as great. There's all different kinds of museums and experiences and walking along the canal and going out. And um, I think Laura can tell you that I became really committed to, to one of the Indianapolis museums, the Levi Kaufman House, which is an absolutely fabulous place to learn about the Underground Railroad. And I'll backtrack a little bit more because I had attended um, a conference in Kansas City, and there was a wonderful person who went around the whole conference and said, if I gave you a million dollars, what would you do with it? And collected all of these responses. Turned out she was the keynote speaker. And she got up in front of the room and she said, okay, you are all museum people and professionals. And I just asked you what you would do with a million dollars. She had done this over the course of three days. Not one of you said you would contribute to museums. You all said diapers and formula, basically. So through Shah, I wanted to explore, and I posed that question actually to my class, and said, if you're not giving to your, to your own site or to other sites, what are we doing trying to get out there and, um, and get other people to do that? So I think within, um, within Shah, I was able to get some grounding. And I think, Jim, and one thing that I took out of my particular year was the results of Kikit. And I thought that was phenomenally important. And I'm sure that that is still being discussed and talked about. And I think that that's, if there's one thing to go for, for me, I think that that was one of the most important. And I'm not going to tell you all about that because I think you should go to Shah. <laughs> I think you should go to Shah and to, and to learn about it. But another thing that, that happened is you, and folks have talked about this already, you really develop a network of people that you can talk to and bounce ideas off. And, it, and it's your, your other classmates, as well as the faculty. And I think one thing that people have a tendency to do just in general is to whimper and whine among their folks in a museum, in their museum world, or to other folks. But you know what, if you're gonna whimper and whine, you need to whimper and whine to people who are not going to repeat it. And I think that that was some of real high value, um, is that you can get together and have a few beers and whimper and wine, but, you, but it, do, it doesn't go anywhere. So 
I had an interesting experience this year in that I was part of um, my past museum's leadership team, and we were going through a reorganization. We had gone from 54 staff members down to 36. Um, budget challenges, of course, were existing and looming even further. And all of a sudden, the leadership team was no longer part of that dialogue. Well, your antenna better start going up that something is probably going on that you need to be paying attention to. Um, on January 7th, I was rift. There were uh, additional 10% of the staff that was rift. So I really had to stop and think about this field and perhaps I wasn't going to be leading from the inside, but maybe I needed to think about leading from the outside and how that might happen. Um, within a week, I was rehired as the project director for the Teaching American History Grant, which was part of my previous, previous life. Um, and I just worked under direct contract with the, with the school district, but I also started getting phone calls from folks who were interested in uh, talking to me about how I might work with their boards on strategic planning and visitor experience and all different kinds of things. So from there, I founded my own um, consulting firm and I'm working on some really fabulous projects and advocating for the field which I think is one of the top things that we need to be doing right now. And we also need to be, Trevor and I had this conversation before most of you walked into the room, and of course off mic, um, but I'll put it out here. We need to be really honest about who we are and what we are and why, um, where did I come from, is popular on a TV, channel, but yet those folks may not necessarily understand and know that our museums may be the place to go, or maybe we're not delivering what we really need to be delivering. So I think that process of self-discovery is really a very, very important one, and unfortunately, we're in an economic climate where that's really hard to do because we're playing catch-up with it. But those are challenges that we just have to meet, and I think that uh, the experience at Shaw can help um, professionals think about those things, because every single site, I think there's no magic formula. Everybody's unique. Working with the local community and um, staff, board, volunteers, how do you put all of that cohesive effort together and really think seriously? So um, that was my shy experience. Okay, I'm supposed to talk about uh, personal and professional changes. So um, when I went, I think I'd been heading in that direction for a while, but for me, I was really trying to figure out at that stage of my career if I wanted to um, continue being a curator, been a curator for a long time, um, published a lot, um, I was teaching, I was teaching museum studies classes, or whether I wanted to move really and be an administrator. And 
if you make that choice, um, you might get 2%, you know, doing what got you into the field at the beginning, but you really become a manager. I, I go to meetings, I manage personnel, and I do budgets. Um, so that was really, I was trying to figure out which direction. Was I going to just stay a curator? Was this going to be that? Or was I going to move on um, and, and do something else? And I think what uh, um, SHA did for me was really solidify what did I want to do with the rest of my career. And that was, that was a great experience because it's kind of like boot camp in a way in that they tear you down and then they build you back up. So you start and you sit and you talk about a lot of the things that you probably haven't really thought about to gra since grad school about you know, why history is important. You read a lot of stuff. But it's not like they're, it's a discussion amongst you and your class and the presenters. It's not so much a lecture format like we're kind of doing today. Um, you know, so this is, not, this is not the best model, I, I'd say, in some ways. Um, so you really get to question a lot of your assumptions with people that are in the field and who really have knowledge and experience. So you're sitting there with, with people that have wrestled with some of the same things, and then you start to sort of build that back up and figure out how you can apply these things. And you get some of the greatest, um, the greatest practitioners and the greatest minds that are out there that are coming to talk to you. Um, and my suggestion to you is if you are going, um, don't skip the ch if uh, somebody who's presenting stays for lunch have lunch with them and sit down and have that conversation because that's the that's one of the best things or if they're staying for dinner ask them where they're going for dinner and if you can tag along because that's where you really get some great conversations um, so for me what it really solidified was okay yeah I am ready I want to be I want to be administrator this is this is I am comfortable with that I made my peace with that and I will move on and up and I did and I was I was gone from the job that I was uh, working at fairly happily I was gone from that in in five months um, after SHA ended um, and so for me that was a really great experience and I actually ended up working for um, somebody who presented at SHA, um, my boss Kent Whitworth for the Kentucky Historical Society, um, did a presentation on how to build a winning team, which he does, and I might be there this year actually um, helping with that. But um, I went home and I, and I really, I wasn't looking for a new job at, at that point at all, and I just, I said to my wife, I said, that's the kind of organization I wanna work for, because I'd worked for a lot of directors, and none of them I felt were particularly good. <laughs> um, so, you know, that was like to find somebody that, that I felt like was aligned with where I wanted to be um, was great. And so there was an opportunity that came up, and, and I applied, and, 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 I, and I got it. And it was, honestly, it was SHA that, that made, allowed me to make that leap. I would not have been hired without, without that on my list. Um, so for me, that was, you know, transformation. Um, it solidified a bunch of stuff. For another one of my classmates, however, it sort of had the opposite effect. He was working for Connor Prairie, um, and he was a uh, um, uh, director of interpretive um, services things, and he was kind of happy in his job, but he felt like he really wanted to make a, a, an impact um, uh, on the world, and he was feeling a little uncomfortable whether he was this was the place for him, and he wasn't really happy with the administrative part of his job. And... Um, within about six months of SHA, he decided, SHA had really solidified him, and he decided that he didn't want to be in the field anymore. And so he went and he now works for a place in, in uh, Oklahoma City, and they're doing um, all sorts of interactive social media stuff with different um, uh, Bible translations and Bible verses and things like that. And he's trying to, and he's working with churches, and he's making a difference in the world, but in a very different way. And it was SHA that really made him reflect on who he was and what he wanted to be. And so I think, you know, you take out of any experience what you bring into it, but if you're willing to examine who you are and what you believe, it, it can be really transformative for you. 
Um, and it certainly was for me, in part because I think we're all so busy, we don't get a whole lot of time to think. I mean, everybody complains about the three weeks. It was, what, five weeks when you did it? I mean, four, was it four? Yeah, it was, I mean, it used to be longer. Um, but I think it needs to be three weeks because the first week, it's like just a decompression from your job. Um, and then um, it's the next two weeks that you really start to, to really have the time to sit and think and examine because you just don't get that other in any other way, which is why people always, in the suggestions for that, people always say, well, why can't it be shorter? And I just don't think it can be um, shorter to allow you that time to get away from the, the, the daily grind. And so my other little piece of advice would be don't think that you're actually going to do some work. Everybody comes in with an idea that you're going to check in with the office and then um, you know, you're going to do it in the evening. When you get back to your room, you'll, you know, you'll answer all those emails. You will be a zombie. You will be fried and you will not be coherent um, by the time that you're done. You know? So I had this great plan. I had all these projects that were due. Um, I was working on a, a syllabus, and I was like, I'm just going to bang. It's fine. You know, i got three weeks. I'll have more time. And, and I didn't. I got nothing done at all. I, I handled a few emergencies, and that, and that was it. Um, so you really have to be focused and, and really put it, you know, um, decide that if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, and you're going to be present there, and you're going to engage in, in any way that you possibly can. Um, and I think everybody goes through a time, you know, during that three weeks where you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I've got two more weeks left. And by the time you reach the third week, you're like, I can't believe it's over. How did that go so quickly? So, um, and, and I would um, back up Andy's um, piece about the, the group that you go with, those people um, will be, you know, your friends and, and your colleagues. I mean, those are the people that I call or I text or I uh, Facebook at the end of a really bad day where I just you know want to walk away uh, from everything. And, and those are the people that talk you off the ledge. So Because you know each other, and you know where they come from, and you know what their belief system is, and you know what their strengths are. And they so to have that many people that you are that close to. I mean, you meet people at conferences, you strike up conversations, you might grow over a few years of time. But that intensity of experience means that those are the people that you can really ask, um, you know, really blunt and honest questions or get really honest feedback because um, they've been through it with you and you share that bond. So um, it's a pretty, honestly, a pretty cheap way to build a, a really tight network. So, um, so for me, it was I, I, you know, I drank the Kool Aid big time, um, uh, but I, I really felt like this was um, for me helped me, saved me from probably a few more years of sort of foundering around deciding what I wanted to do and, and coalesced um, that thought in my head a lot faster. So I'm very grateful for the experience. There we go. Okay, I just want to touch on a, a couple of things um, before, before we open it up for questions. Um, first of all, Donna Lee, kind of alluded to this, when, or well, she did, she said it, it took her 10 years to apply, and it took me six. This isn't something you do overnight, um, and really, it probably would have taken longer for me if it, it had still been held at Williamsburg, but it happened to move to my hometown. So that made it that, made it that much easier. Um, you can get to the application and what all is required to the for the application on the AASLH website. Just go to the SHA page and there are, the application form is there and you're, um, it will give you the additional items that are required. 
Uh, there's a couple, you're required to do a couple of letters of recommendation and, and that type of thing. But the one thing that you are, that you're required to do is a case statement. And in that case statement, they want, what we want you to do is tell us why you want to attend. And that is very important. Take some time, be thoughtful, and really, really put it out there. Um, and we will, we will um, hopefully be contacting you that you were accepted. So that's, um, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on. Also, we have a blog. And um, as a um, manager, you have to deal with a site with, with someone who would be gone for three weeks. So how do you get ready for that? How do you deal with that? Our current blog author is Rebecca Slaughter, who is um, on the SHA Alumni Committee, and she's in Las Cruces, Mex New Mexico. And she, talk, she speaks to that, how she gets ready every year to send, because she's one of those managers that believes in sending year after year. So um, she talks about that. We've also had um, instances where, where managers have changed. The person's been accepted, and then they couldn't go because their manager wouldn't allow them to leave for three weeks. So those type of things we have, we have all sorts of documentation and support for those issues. We, we can answer your questions. So speaking of that, um, we'd like to open it up for any of us, and we'll just pass the mic back and forth. And um, people on the panel, if I can remind you to repeat the question, because it is recorded so that we have it on record. But yeah, all right. Any questions for any of us? Yes. <laughs> oh. Maybe Jim should answer this question, but um, in short, Kaikit was a think tank, a, a short-term think tank about challenging the assumptions of how we operate historic sites and um, how our visitors think about us and just start thinking differently. Um, that maybe the measures that we use are not the measures that we should use. Um, maybe the forms of evaluation that we use are not the forms of evaluation that we should be using. Um, maybe we need to be looking at our, at our missions in a very different way. Uh, maybe we should be thinking about collections in a very different way, from the largest scale building as a collection to furnishings to whatever, and um, should I add anything, or is that it in, in, in short? And Jim just said he'd be there to talk about Kikit and those results um, for a day, and I think that having the opportunity to talk for a day about what people are thinking about the field, I think that's one of the advantages of Shaw. That's a, that's a luxury that most of us don't get in every, in every day that we have. Um, and, it's, it's, and we need to think of it not as a luxury, we need to think of it as the way that we talk and discuss and operate, so that we can work our way through this, through this um, 
economy and world that we're in right now. Sure. Um, um, the curriculum, the question was what, um, what the curriculum is and, and the type of people that are on, on the curriculum and, and what's covered. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit from my year uh, simply because that's what I'm most familiar with. And I know that our, our current SHA coordinator, um, John Durrell, has changed it a little bit to where it's um, very much more hands-on. There's a lot of hands, more hands-on sessions and that type of thing. You learn in the morning and then you uh, are, are um, doing hands-on sessions in the afternoon type of, type of session. But um, there's two gentlemen in here that were, that were on the faculty when I was here. One is Andy, of course, and, then, and, and Jim Vaughn. And, um, but most of our um, uh, faculty are from those leading organizations in the field, AAM, AASLH, um, and there's, then there's also the hands-on on sessions like human resources and accounting and those type of things that aren't so exciting, but you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's okay. But anyway, but Jim, do you want to talk any more about anything that you experience as a faculty participant or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. I agree, Jim. And another thing, and this is more mundane, but I think it's real, and that is credentials. Uh, I serve on the American Association of Museums Accreditation Commission, and we look at hundreds of museums that apply for accreditation or reaccreditation. And when I see the director of the museum is an SHA graduate, um, I have a level of comfort that this person has professional training and understands the uh, issues in the field. Uh, likewise, if I'm serving on a grant uh, panel uh, for IMLS or NEH, uh, and I see the museum director or the staff uh, of a, an institution have uh, SHA on their uh, resume, it makes a difference uh, to me. Um, it, they are credentials that are going to help you 
uh, not just build that uh, network uh, and as, as a badge of honor, uh, but it's going to help you in your professional uh, career, um, uh, whether it's applying for a grant, applying for a job, uh, or um, uh, getting your museum accredited. Where's the talent? You know, uh, Jim, you're on the search committee. Uh, why don't you come on up here and, yes. and talk into this thing, though? Yes. Because this session's being recorded. That's why we I'm need this. I actually was very shy until I went to the seminar. <laughs> the real yeah. um, well, I, I think the most important thing in the uh, application to the seminar is the statement that you write about why you want to be there. And um, uh, because we do get, um, in, in, in good strong years, we get a lot more applicants that look qualified than we can take. And usually when we're trying to sort them out, we're looking at that statement and saying, is this, is this really the right person? Now, we also, in years where we have a lot of applications, we're trying to get the right mix. So uh, uh, geographical mix and uh, how many women, how many men, and how are the roommates going to match up? And uh, but but I by and large I'd say the one thing I'd spend a little time on is thinking through why uh, why do I want to do this and why is it, what am I? And it's also uh, important to think about what you bring to the seminar. It's not a one-way street. You're going to be teaching your classmates just like you're going to be learning from your classmates. So. Kaikit is an actual site in New York that is owned by the Rockefeller Fund. And it's owned by the National Trust. It's owned by the National Trust. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> um, and operated by the, by the Rockefeller fund, fund. So, yeah. Yes. Other thoughts, questions? Did you think about what that moment was in your, your early career, maybe when you were a child, that first hooked you on history?
I think many of us have had those kind of uh, moments, and usually it's it's pretty young. It's probably between seven and thirteen or so mm -hmm. uh, when you had that experience. Does, does anyone else remember that? What was your? Yeah, I was uh, I was born and raised in St. Louis, and on Saturdays in high school, my girlfriend Sherry and I used to go to the art museum or the Jefferson uh, Museum, and that was my favorite because they had the Charles Lindbergh exhibit there, and I remember. <laughs> how, how important it is to keep track of the paperwork and that, you know, I just, I just knew, well, if they have it up here, it has to be real type of stuff. And, and it is real and it's still there if you want to go see it. <laughs> and how, how old were you? I, I think I was, I, I wasn't driving yet. Uh, so I must have been a freshman or sophomore in high school. Anybody else remember that, that history moment? I have one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had been raised, whenever we went on vacation, we'd always go to one or two museums. We went to Colorado a lot. Um, so I covered all the museums in Denver pretty heavily. But um, as a child, I lived in Oklahoma, and my mother's friend was the volunteer coordinator at the Philbrook. And so one day, my mom filled in for a volunteer, and she took me along, and there happened to be an archaeologist in residence. And I got to meet him, and he told me that if I wanted to be an archaeologist, I had to take a vow of poverty. And I was like 10. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's all fine and good, but I'm going to see if I can't lead around that topic. And so I was a young upstart in a museum being told reality and still wanting to do it. Yeah. yeah. Laura, what was yours? Well, I have a couple, but I'll tell you the, the second one, actually. Um, I was, and this was actually quite late, but I was, um, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit, but I was born in 1969, and so that was the middle of the Vietnam era, and had a father who had served late or early in the conflict, but not for very long, but he had lost comrades over, over there, and I came in um, to the conversation. He would never talk about this to me, and so I never really had any concept of what Vietnam actually was. And so when I was a junior in college, we took a family trip to Washington, D.C. to Arlington National Cemetery. And we're standing there watching the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And I'm looking at the various tombs, and this one is no longer there, so it's pretty, pretty profound now, even. But I noticed the years on the, on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier for Vietnam are 1958 to 1975. And all of a sudden, 
I, you know, I did the math and my quick math in my head, and I'm like, 17 years. Well, no wonder people were honked off. <laughs> and it was, it was just like, it was a true aha moment. And so, um, but I had, but I had also grown up going to all sorts of museums and historic sites, just like Cinnamon and and many of you here. So, um, I think that, I think that that's that happens mostly for me, and we talk, the keynote speaker to talk, today talked about eloquence of place, and I'm very much a believer in being in the moment, in the place. So if you want to talk about that further with me, we can have a, have a good conversation. But anyway, um, if, does anybody else have any questions or comments or anything you want to, yes? Yeah, um, we have we have a blog, and um, one of our SHA alumni has a blog about that right now, and that blog is on WordPress, and it's developing history leaders. So if you um, go to that, and also we will have our own site by the end of the month. I don't have the exact address yet, or the web address yet, but it will be all integrated as well. So. Because I think that using some of the um, faculty and uh, staff uh, and former participants in the program as uh, testimonials from them uh, might be a way to, if they speak our language, uh, if they're, uh, so I think that uh, there, there are ways to help uh, educate your supervisors uh, besides the, the blog, um, it's, it's really, <laughs> well, that might happen. Why, why don't you just convince her that you'll be the guinea pig, and then uh, you'll come back and tell her. Okay. Um, while we're kind of wrapping up here, each of us has, a, has business cards here in front of us for you're free to take. Also, if you want more information such as, or you want us to contact you to hopefully um, convince your supervisor to let, let you go, whatever, whatever reason. If you have questions for whatever reason, we have, I have a sign-up sheet here. Just give me your name and email, and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, and one of us from the, from the SHA um, alumni committee or, or other um, classes can contact you and, and uh, hopefully get you there in the, in the near future. So, yes. Ah, thank you. <laughs> we have um, a a um, SHA alumni reception this evening, or it's also for, open for those who are interested in attending Developing History Leaders at SHA. And also, if you look at many of us on our name tags have our different ribbons, and there is a ribbon for, for a person that is a, an alum. So if you see one of us, just stop us and we'll, we'll answer, we'll be glad to answer whatever questions you have, so. 5.30, 5.30 to 6.30, does somebody have the room? 5.45 to 6.30, Salon 4, yes, great, thank you very much. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thank you.